Um, I'm Danny. Most of you know me, but if you don't, Danny, this name tags never stick on my clothes, so now I can take it off. <laughs> so I'm claiming this thing as well as mine now. Pastor James, stay away from it. <laughs> Good. Well, one of the, the great things of preaching on Sunday mornings is that you also get to say a thing or two about the music being played, and I just love that song. Thanks, Jeremy, for playing that. I didn't even ask him. He just knows that I love that song. But I think it's a, it's, it's a great, great song. We um, have gone, not a whole lot of room over here, by the way. Uh, we have gone through the book of John for several weeks right now. Kids are waving at me. This means probably like we don't want to be around you for another 45 minutes. So kids, you can be dismissed for children's here. All right. Well, as I said, we have been going to the book of John for uh, a couple of weeks, well, months, I would say. We started at the Advent season, and we will go on till the end of May. So if you don't like the book of John, then you can check out, come back to church in June, and we start (laughs) something else. Now, actually, I would say, can I encourage you just to read with us? 21 chapters in six months, that's pretty manageable, right? If, if you have never really read an entire book of the Bible, this is a great place to start. And on top of that, you get the teaching of Pastor James to go along with it. So for these passages that you're struggling with, you actually get them explained to you. So what a great thing that is. I would really encourage you just to keep reading with us and also read the in-between chapters that we don't cover. Currently, we are... I'm just going to have to rearrange this whole thing. I'm a little. <laughs> Currently, we're in a subset of, um, of sermons called Messiah Encounters. And in this section, we're talking about interactions that Jesus had with people that he ran into during his ministry. Now, as Pastor James has already pointed out a couple of times, these meetings tended to be predominantly with those people in the margins of society, the sick, the blind, the hungry, the needy, rather than with the wealthy and the influential and the popular. He sometimes does interact with people that are influential as well, as you probably remember with Nicodemus and some other people. But the interesting thing is when those interactions happen, they tend to come to Jesus rather than the other way around. And I think that one of the reasons why Jesus tends to do so well with the people in the margins, the marginalized people, is not necessarily, although this has a great deal to do with it, it's not necessarily the fact that they need him or they are needy people that Jesus needs to administer to, I actually do think that they have a deep sense of being aware of the fact that they need Jesus in their life. It tends to come more natural to those of us who are marginalized, who are more in need. So as to speak in terms of last week's sermons, of sermon, it was the man who was born blind who realized that he needed to see. 
Now, the reality, obviously, is that all of us have been born blind, right? We all are born blind in need for Jesus to clear up our vision. But until we realize our deep need for him, he will not move or force himself upon us. Now, while studying the encounters in the Gospel of John, I hope you have picked up a reoccurring way that John does things. Because in the miracles or the signs that he has been performing, they always come with a teaching or a theology that Jesus wants to drive home. The first miracle we looked at, where he changed water into wine, was followed by a conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus spoke about renewing your life or being born again and being changed in that way. When we looked at the healing of the man that had been laying at the pool for 38 years, Jesus stretched the fact that he was the son and that he was the only one who can bring new life and restoration. When we looked at the 5,000 being fed, Jesus made the claim that he is the bread of life, the only one who is able to give us full nourishment and to sustain us in our daily walk with him. And last week when we looked at the healing of the blind man, Jesus said, I am the life. I am the only one by whom you can walk through this life, who will give meaning and illumination to the things that you do. So as you see, his signs and his miracles are not just there to woo the crowd. Although it obviously is a very important way to affirm his messianic identity, but beyond that, and perhaps even more importantly, they serve as an illustration and a validation of the claims that Jesus makes about his identity. Now, this week we will see the same thing as well. And as the claims are getting wilder, and may I say in a disrespectful way, crazier and crazier, more difficult for us to wrap our minds around, you also see that his signs are becoming more and more incredible as well. I would invite you to stand while I read today's encounter. It is found in chapter 11 in the book of John. I'm reading NLT, and the words are up on the screen as well. A man named Lazarus was sick, and he lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day, and during the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. 
but at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then he returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at, were at the house consoling Mary saw her leaving so hastily, they assumed that she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. Then Mary arrived and saw Jesus, and she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. He will smell terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We, we have seen some pretty unbelievable miracles thus far, haven't we? 
This is the last one, by the way, in the Gospel of John. But we have seen some incredible miracles. We have seen water being turned into wine. We have seen lame men being able to walk again. We have, been, we have seen 5,000 people being fed. And we have seen the healing of the blind. Now, many of us have read these stories so many times that we have lost our sense of amazement and wonder when we read them again. So I thought it would be a good idea to look at some reactions of people who kind of tend to experience this all anew. So I brought a little video, and let's, let's, let's watch it and just see. I mean, do you see their amazement and their look on their faces when they see these things happening? 
Now, I'm obviously showing this with a great deal of respect towards God and towards Jesus. It's not my intention at all to make fun of either of them and the miracles that Jesus did. But I think it is important for us to wrestle with the idea that Jesus really can do these kind of things. When I was an interim student at the University of Florida, I came over from Holland. I just had become a Christian. And I had a professor who was a strong Christian man. And he took me and a friend of his to a Benny Hinn revival. Now, the friend that he took with him was paralyzed and in a wheelchair. And he had been going to these Benny Hinn Hinn faith healing meetings for well over 15 years, I think. So I decided to come along with them. And obviously, I know that Benny Hinn has a certain reputation. And I am highly skeptical myself as just kind of one of the character traits that I have. So I was fairly dismissive of the whole incident. And if you relate to this in terms of what the blind man said last week, like all I know is I was blind and now I can see, is that evening all I knew is I came in with a man who could not walk and I came out with a man that could not walk. But while I was in my bed at night, God kind of started to have this conversation with me. And I don't know if you've ever had that, but it's almost like if your personality splits in two and it seems like you're having a conversation with yourself. And the question to me was, like, Danny, it's, I understand. I understand that there's a certain reputation that Benny Hinn has. And I understand that there is a reason to be uh, somewhat skeptical about these things. But the real question at stake here for you is, do you believe that I can actually heal people? Do you, do you really, really believe that? Because if you don't, then we really have a problem here. Then your faith in all the other things might be built on thin ice, right? So I hope that this morning I have helped you not to rush past the fact how stunning and truly amazing this miracle really is. I mean, here is a guy that has been dead for four days, and he literally walks out of his own grave with his linen, which was used to preserve the body from decaying, still wrapped around him. Do you believe that this really happened? Can you imagine yourself standing among the crowd when the stone is being rolled away and seeing the very man step out that four days before you helped bury You see, this was not a mistake in the diagnosis. I mean, they had not forgotten to check Lazarus' pulse before they put him in the tomb. I mean, Lazarus had not spent the last four days on the inside of the tomb, banging on the the rock, let me out, let me out. So before I start dissecting this text, and before I will move on to the theological implications of all of this, I want to ask you to wrestle for a moment with the wonder and the magnitude of this miracle. Have you ever settled in your heart and in your mind that Jesus could and still can really do these kind of miracles? Or are you just brushing it aside as some kind of allegory when you move on to the next parable and the next story. 
Now let's move back to the text. We're reading here about a family tragedy. It involves true relatives, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, whom he considered friends. And the Bible even says, goes as far as to say that he loved them. Now, the Bible has made several references to this family. Some of you might be familiar with the story where Jesus goes out and visits Mary and Martha, where Mary is nicely sitting at his feet, listening, while Martha is complaining that her sister is not helping him, taking care of the things that you do when you're a good host, like serving cheese platters and stuff like that. Next week, we will be looking at the story of Mary actually anointing the Lord as in a preparation for his burial. So this is a family that is really close to Jesus. The fact that the Bible says that John goes as far as to say that he loved them, it's interesting because in verse 3, they sent him uh, and they sent the one who you loved, and they actually refer to it as brotherly love, phileo love, and then John comes back and he said, Jesus who loved the family, agape love, so this was a really deep sense of love that he had for this family. Now, we obviously all know that Jesus loves all of us, but it's interesting that the Bible doesn't really say very often that Jesus loved somebody. The only examples that I'm aware of is with a rich young ruler and with the beloved disciple John himself, but if you, if I'm wrong on this, you're more than Welcome to correct me after the service. But it doesn't happen very often that he goes out of his way to say that he loves somebody. Now, Lazarus was very sick. Sick to the point of possibly dying, which is why the sister sent a messenger. Now, Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, grabs his belongings, gathers his disciples, starts running to Bethany, and hopes that he makes it on time. No, that is not what he's, in do- what he's doing. In fact, he just loiters around for an additional two days. Life and death situations don't seem to have the same urgency for Jesus as they have for us, right? Because he has done this before, you know. There was a man by the name of Jairus. He was a synagogue ruler. This was one of those instances where Jesus... Where, where, was dealing with the affluent, like I said, a synagogue ruler, but he had to go to Jesus. And he did go to Jesus. Why? Because his daughter was very sick as well. So in desperation, Jairus drops at the feet of Jesus, hangs on to him, and asks him if he can please come to the rescue of his daughter as fast as possible. And what does Jesus do? He takes his sweet old time, because he has more important things to do, like healing a woman that has been struggling with bleeding for a lot of years, and he is interacting with him, and once again, he shows up too late. Now, in the case of Lazarus, it's not really clear as to why he is delaying, just that he is. Two days, to be exact. Now, add to that the two days of traveling, and Jesus shows up four days too late. Now, this is a significant detail, because during the days of Jesus, the Jews used to believe that the spirit of a dead person hovered over the body for an additional three days before it would depart. So by this time, Lazarus really is dead. 
The King James Version actually goes as far as to say that by now he stinketh. Now, we don't really know what Jesus is doing during these two days, but it tells us that Lazarus ultimately is not going to die. I don't know if you noticed that, but in verse 4 it says, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but that God and the Son will be glorified through this encounter. And in reading this, it sounds so familiar to what we read last week, right? When the disciples had a question about why the man was born blind. Was it because of his own sin, or was it because of the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It is so that the power of God can be on display. Now, the disciples are dealing with another possible death. When they are bucking at Jesus' suggestion to go back to Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem, or Judea, as the text said, and they are saying, don't you remember, Jesus? We were just there. We were just there. Did you forget that they tried to stone you? Hello, danger? You are going to take all this risk to wake up a guy who is asleep? But as they realize that Lazarus is not asleep but dead, and Jesus is not going to change his mind, Thomas is making a statement that he is ready to follow Jesus even if this leads to death which unfortunately rings especially hollow in light of the cross when there was none but only one disciple left to join Jesus in his last moments. So when Jesus finally makes it to Bethany, there are two encounters that are happening. The first encounter is with Martha, who is the first one out there to meet him. The second encounter that happens is with Mary and with the Jews that are with her. Now, today, I actually want to start with the latter of the two encounters first, with the encounter between Mary, the Jews, and Jesus, before I move on to Martha. Now, Mary comes out, and she's followed by a crowd, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus, sobbing. And she tells him, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, verse 33, and this is a real shocker to me. Verse 33, the reason why it's a shocker to me is that I tend to personally read the NIV and the ESV versions, and I'm sure that you all have your own favorite version, but we have been using the NLT version for this, um, for this series. And now it really jumped out to me, because 30, verse 33 in the NLT says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. A deep anger welled up within him. Now, the NIV says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, maybe you've made the same mistake as I. I always read this as a sign of compassion. Jesus identifying with the loss of Mary, sharing the same tears as she is mourning and deeply saddened by the loss 
of her brother. But the picture we're getting from the NLT is quite different. It tells us that something Mary and her entourage said and did deeply angered Jesus. A quick study of the Greek reveals that the NLT is actually closer in its translation than the NIV is. And that the emotions that Jesus had were not those of empathy, but of anger and disturbance. So the question is, what caused these kind of deep emotions in Jesus? We don't see Jesus angry very often, and especially we don't see him angry very often with those he loved. You know, this is one of those instances where it would have been great to be there, right? To, to be able just to observe the dialogue, the conversation that took place between Mary and Jesus. Scientists tell us that 90% of the communication that we have with each other is nonverbal. So we're obviously missing a lot here when we're just reading the text. But I think it is safe to assume that the crowd gives words to what Mary is thinking and communicating by her question, where were you? And by her sobs of disapproval when it say, when the crowd says in verse 36 and 37, the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man? Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? So the question at stake here for Mary seems to be, Jesus, did you really love my brother? Jesus, do you really love us? Because the fact that you show up four days too late tells me otherwise. Where were you? Were you not able to prevent this? You have done this for other people. You do not love me. Does this sound familiar to, to any of you? Or am I the only one who can identify with this? Have you ever questioned Jesus' love for you at times when hardship struck and he showed up too late or not at all? Or he did not do what you expected him to do or wanted him to do? Whether it was not healing someone that you deeply love or lifting a financial burden that you have been struggling with or allowing a passing in your family as well? It hurts. It, it hurts when people that are important to you question your love. This morning, on this Wednesday morning, Josefina had a doctor's appointment, so I was in charge of getting the two kids ready for school. And I don't know if you know any five-year-old that actually has a concept of time and knows how to move in a speedily manner so that he will be on school on time, but my son is not in that category. So while he thinks that playing and watching TV and whatever else is more important than actually getting ready for school, I'm starting to get upset and angry. So this conversation is starting to spiral out of control a little bit, where it's like, I'm sure that never happens in your house, but in our house that sometimes happens. But at a certain point, Tiago is looking at me, and he is, I can see that he's really upset. And he says, you don't want me here. You, you don't love me. 
And it changes the conversation immediately to a whole new level, right? Because it, it, it hurts when people that you care about question your love for them. And now even though at a five-year-old you maybe don't have to take it too seriously, or maybe we need to, can we schedule family counseling? <laughs> It does hurt, and, and it hurts Jesus as well when we question his love for us. You see, it is important, and I hope you grab this, but it's important for us to realize that when we find ourselves in difficult situations, in deep pain and hardship, because life is not treating us fair, that we do not equate our circumstances with a withdrawal of Jesus' love for us. Let me say that again. It is important for us to realize that when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, in deep pain and hardship, because life is not treating us fair, that we do not equate our circumstances with a withdrawal of Jesus, his deep love for us. A love that is so profound that it found its ultimate expression on the cross. You see, the Bible already affirmed that at the beginning of the text that Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Martha. And Jesus loved Lazarus. And may I add to that that Jesus loves you and Jesus loves me. This is, this is not just a tacky line on a bumper sticker, people. It really isn't. It, it is something that you can take to the bank. And when the true really, truth really sets in, you will find that it will bring you a peace and a joy that truly surpasses all understanding. Now let's go back to Martha, because I, for those of you who have your Bible open, I hear what you're thinking. Did she not say the exact same thing as her sister did? Yes, she did. Verse 21. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, but, verse 22. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. But even now, in all of this, in my questioning, and even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And in this statement, rather than blaming or questioning Jesus' love or lack thereof, Martha displays a trust in God and Jesus and affirms her faith in Jesus as the perfect mediator between her and God. She knows that he loves her family, that he has the best in mind for them, even though she might not be able to see this right now, she knows. And then Jesus assures her that things have not ended for Lazarus, but that he will have eternal life. What a promise. What a promise to give to this lady. Eternal life is what is promised first, not just the temporary extension that he will get later on, 
not just a couple of additional years where he gets to scratch off a couple more items on his bucket list. So this brings us to the two most important verses in this chapter. And I probably would say maybe two of the most important verses in all of the Gospel of John. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, church? So Jesus makes a promise about Lazarus and all those who have passed away when he says, anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. And then he continues and makes a promise to Martha and all of us. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Now, Jesus can make this promise not just because he has the authority or the ability, but because he is the resurrection and the life. You see, salvation is not a thing. Salvation is a person. And all that Jesus asks in return, and this is too easy, and that's why we wrestle so much with this, right? But all that he asks is for us to believe this. Which Martha, in a very eloquent way, declares she does. Now, the rest of the story, the actual bringing Lazarus back to life, is not the grand finale of the story. If you think it is, then I'm actually afraid that you're missing the point. Because I would argue that verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life, is the grand finale of this story. The rest is just icing on the cake. You see, it reminds me of another miracle that Jesus carried out. It was early on in his ministry, and Jesus had set up shop in a house, and he was healing people, and it was so crowded that people could not get in. So there are, two, there are four friends that have one other friend who cannot walk. They put him on a stretcher. They haul him off to Jesus, and hoping that he would heal them. The problem for them is the house is full. There is no space. They can't get in. So they go up on the roof. They literally cut a hole in the roof. They lower, Jesus, uh, lower the, blind man, uh, the lame man right in front of Jesus. And Jesus is astonished at the faith of the friends. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and then murmuring goes on behind his back, right? <sighs> Who can forgive sins but God alone? So you see Jesus moving back. Uh, uh, uh. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk. 
what is easier to say? I know what I would pick. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Nobody can check that, right? I don't even have the authority, but you have no clue if your sins are forgiven when I tell you your sins are forgiven. <laughs> what I do know is when I tell you, get up and walk, and I have made a complete fool of myself, right? The reality for Jesus is exactly the opposite. It's easy for him to say, get up and walk. He knew what it would cost him to be able to say, your sins are forgiven. It took him all the way to the cross. But I want you to know, he says, that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. So which is easier, to promise eternal life to Lazarus and all those who believe? Or to raise a dead man back to life? Same thing, right? Same thing. I know what I would pick. You'll live forever. Bye. Not so for Jesus. He knew what it will take to be able to give eternal life. He was the resurrection. It came at a great cost. But once again, just so that you might believe that the Son of Man has the authority to grant life eternal, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I say it out loud so that for the sake of the people standing here, so that they will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave cloths, and his face wrapped in a head cloth. I would like the, the worship team to come, to come back on stage and... And, and, and start playing. But this time, maybe you've already noticed this, there's actually two songs at the end. So I would like to ask you to remain seated during the duration of the first song and really take some time between you and God. There is no need to sing. If you want to, you're more than welcome. But let the lyrics and the music help you to quiet your heart before God. Maybe you need to feel God's love today. You have heard about His love. You have read about His love. Maybe you even have experienced His love at some point. But just like as with Mary, life has kind of a way of choking it out, right? Maybe you have lost somebody as well in recent days or in days past, someone you deeply cared about. Maybe you're dealing with serious health issues or with family issues and you don't seem to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you have experienced deep trauma and you question if Jesus really, really loves you. 
if this is you, please know that Jesus loves you. And even though it hurts him when you question his love to the point that he is actually crying, he never dismisses Mary, nor does he punish her. So this morning, if you have never experienced God's love, or if it has faded to the background, reach out to him. And, and, and confess that you have doubted him. And I'm sure that he will assure you that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Some of you have maybe never ever answered Jesus' question. I am the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Eternal life and eternal love in the presence of our Lord hinges on how you answer this question. And I would strongly encourage you not to delay this. A lot can happen in four days. His arms are open, ready to receive you. You only have to take him up upon his offer. So this morning might be the morning when your stone is being rolled away. You no longer have to fear death. And you find yourself in the company of Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and all the saints who have gone before you.